Welcome back to the Better Way podcast brought to you by RNG Insights Lab. This is a curiosity podcast for those who find themselves asking, there has to be a better way, right? There just has to be. I'm Zach Kuselia, the co-founder of RNG Insights Lab, and I'm here as always with my friend and colleague and collaborator, Wei Chen. Hi, Zach. Hi, everyone. I'm very excited about the discussion we're going to have today. Me too. So, Hui, we have a guest. Why don't you uh, tell us who our guest is today? Well, our guest is Kevin Espinoza, with whom I've been exchanging very exciting ideas about training. So we're going to dive into that in just a bit. But before we dive into the topic, Zach, I think you'd like to ask your existential question. I would like to ask my existential question. And Kevin, my, my question is, who are you? Who's Kevin? First of all, it's great to be with you both. Such a pleasure to, to be in this type of discussion, talking about how we can continuously do better or find better ways to do things. But the answer to your question, when I think about who I am, of course, the family stuff comes first, but professionally, I'm a leader and I'm a coach. And I think that has defined my entire career. Um, I grew up playing sports and I was so fortunate to have that opportunity to start my professional career as a, as a collegiate coach. And that's never stopped. The things that one of my players had told me would transition from coaching to, to the business world were, 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 were absolutely true. So I guess I can thank a, a very insightful 21-year-old who, who told me, hey, you'd be really good at this stuff. And um, I followed her advice ever since. Kevin, if I'm correct um, in in remembering this, in your business professional journey, you actually started in sales and marketing? That's correct. That's correct. So I, I started in sales. I, I made this incredibly bizarre career change from collegiate coaching to working in sales. Um, somebody was foolish enough to hire me as a hospital specialty rep in Boston, Massachusetts. I had absolutely no business. Uh, based on my experience doing that job. And I, I had a degree of success and, and I had the opportunity to go in-house at, at, a, at a big pharma company. And, and it was just, you know, uh, an unconventional path to compliance. And at that time, there were only lawyers working in the space with a few accountants. And so it was a much, much different world than where we are today as a profession. But it prepared me for everything that I've, I've done since because I experienced compliance before I started working in it. I worked at a, at a company that had a great compliance program, Eli Lilly. And yet still, there was a sense of disconnect that these people didn't really understand me and they might not trust me. And I don't think, I, I know for a fact, that was not the intention of the people I worked with. It, it's not how they saw their work, but that's how it felt. That's how I experienced it. And when I got assigned policies, I felt bureaucratic. When my colleagues were investigated, I felt it was punitive. And despite their best efforts, again, of a really good compliance program in the year 2000, it didn't change the impact they were having on me, or at least not in a meaningful enough way to override all those other things I just described. I imagine when you went from uh, sales and marketing to compliance, it was like joining the enemy camp. Uh, <laughs> I am very curious as to how your experience coming from sales and marketing has influenced your approach to compliance. 
the job I was doing just preceding my entry into compliance was I was working on the Eli Lilly brand team, the corporate brand team. And we were going around the company doing brand action exercises, helping people better align their daily work with the desired corporate brand. So we had four brand attributes. We wanted everything employees are doing to align with those four brand attributes. And one of the groups I was advising was compliance. So to answer your question, when I was invited to join the team, I was already advising them. I was already helping them discover insights that they already possess to better implement compliance. And the craziest thing of that experience is I was asked to, to help launch the International Compliance Program. Unbeknownst to me, we were right in the middle of an FCPA investigation. It was a similar fact pattern to what Sharon Plow had gone through. And, and somebody said, you know what? We're gonna do this different. We're gonna put this organization reporting to the global marketing and sales organization so my boss had no compliance experience. I had no compliance experience. And we went out and hired a bunch of top talent in the global marketing and sales organization from around the world. So from the very outset, we said, we're going to do this different. And we're not going to be called compliance. We're going to be called global compliance solutions because we are going to find solutions that help our teammates be successful. They were never our clients. They were never outside of us. They were always our colleagues, always our teammates. So from my very first job in, in compliance, we sat shoulder to shoulder with the business. We were in the business. We reported to the same boss. Still absolutely love the experience because we were able to pluck top talent out of every region of the world. We gave top talent opportunity to get out of their country, get into the region, dotted line to the regional head, and, and really bring those leadership attributes that a lot of us try to cultivate, they already had them. They were already top talent and we could teach anybody compliance. And that's been a mantra of mine over the years. When I need expertise, I go find it. If I'm trying to find somebody who's great at monitoring, I don't care if they've ever done compliance before. I can teach them compliance, but I can't teach them the sophistication of using advanced data analytics. So Kevin, it's really interesting for me to hear of a company, at least at one point, Mm -hmm. of seeing compliance as a marketing exercise, um, <laughs> which I, I think it's awesome. And your experience coming from marketing and working in a marketing embedded compliance function clearly shaped the view of how you do things. So one of the things that, that led us to our very fascinating exchange was how training was done. We We talked about the model of doing compliance training, not as compliance training, but really as part of business learning. Mm -hmm. And you have some examples of how that was done in your experience. So tell us more about that. For me to do my job at Lilly, I had to go to Lilly Marketing Institute and do 12 hours of core marketing training. So before I could even enter a brand planning session, as a compliance person, I still had to have that foundational. So from, again, the outset of my career, I knew nothing else. I knew that I had to be fully trained as a marketer in order to work with marketers. And so that was always in my head. And the, the benefits I had was I, I got to work with learn, certified learning professionals. So when I started getting into leadership roles in compliance, I was struck that many of our people in charge of training and learning were not learning professionals. 
it was people that, again, who did great work, but weren't qualified to do it. And so I always reflected back to my experience of working with certified learning professionals. And what they offer is, first of all, adult learning. So not everything needs to be a computer-based training. You know, live sessions, workshops, all these things work well. And you got to have clear object objectives. You got to ensure the course meets those objectives. And then you got to have a, an assessment at the end that demonstrates that they know that. So again, that's my foundation is I understand how, you know, good training and good learning, which are different, how those things need to occur. So in the pharmaceutical industry, there's two principal ways that we educate physicians. The number one way, well, there's many ways now, but back then, and, and to some extent today, we invest a lot of our resources in direct education of clinicians through sales reps. So we have direct one-to-one, -one, the sales rep shows up in the office, does that education. Then the other way is peer-to-peer -peer speaker programs, where we hire um, a speaker, generally a physician, who at a restaurant or even live on site within a uh, like a hospital, for example, um, will educate doctors on a product on our behalf. So they are, I guess, in legal terms, an agent of the company. They are contracted and paid, uh, at least on the pharmaceutical side of our industry. They can only use slides that we have constructed. In some smaller companies, they still let the doctors develop the slides. But generally speaking, this is a promotional exercise. The FDA sees this as 100% promotion. If you're paying the doctor, you control the agenda, you invite the attendees, it's promotional. Now, that being said, we're in the life science industry. So there is a very scientific educational bend to this. And as you can imagine, if you're paying someone who's a really important customer of yours to speak to other important customers of yours, there's significant kickback risk there. Or there's also a significant opportunity for off-label promotion which is very significant in the pharmaceutical industry, we can only promote within the approved label. So this is one of our higher risk activities when we're paying very, very influential, important customers to speak to other important customers. We monitor these programs. We send people out to attend the programs. We also do records review to, to evaluate sign-in sheets of attendees and, and, and all, the, all, all the requirements within our policies. And the knee-jerk reaction sometimes when you find an actual violation in monitoring is to say, what did the rep do wrong? Well, that was never our position. You know, we, we embrace humility and compassion or empathy. And so with that mindset, your first question is not what did the rep do wrong? It's what went wrong and why? And because the problem may be us. Maybe we didn't effectively train them. Maybe we didn't give them the support and resources they need. We found ourselves in this position of doing our root cause analysis to say, okay, we have an unusually high number of violations. Why did it happen? And in our root cause analysis, we found training to be a bit insufficient, but we also found some degree of, of frustration from the business side, if you will, where reps weren't really prepared to do this. And as we dug deeper, we found out that in the sales training the initial sales training at most companies takes about a month to get these sales reps trained to do their, 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 their work. We hadn't trained them on how to do a, a speaker program effectively. And so we in compliance saw this as a great partnering opportunity with the business. 
So we had our findings. We went to the sales leadership team, basically all the vice presidents of sales, about 10 people or so. And we presented to them what our findings were. And then our ask of them was, can you support the development of a pilot program, or as I like to say, a phased implementation program, where we could develop some new tools and then roll it out in one particular business unit, maybe a a smaller section of that. And so they assigned us a project manager from sales, from sales operations. And there was probably about eight people involved in the program and one compliance person. So eight business people and me. And the idea was we're going to help employees be more successful, which also is compliant. Resources were how to plan and then how to follow up on a speaker program. The training was more focused on execution, um, but we had these other supporting tools. And so we named the, the intervention we were going to do how to conduct an effective speaker program. And we seamlessly embedded compliance, you know, policy requirements and that sort of thing within the, the training. So, and because it's being delivered by the sales leadership team, it wasn't seen as a, as a compliance intervention. We had maybe four or five objectives to the training itself, and one or two were compliance related. So if we ever had to show this, which of course we did, have to show this to the DOJ or OIG, we could show them, hey, we are and we are teaching them how to be compliant. We just embed it as two of four or two of five objectives within a course. When I was at DOJ in 2016, mm-hmm. 17, I was at um, one of the conferences where somebody asked me about compliance training. And I then said, my dream would be that there is no separate compliance training. My dream would be that all compliance training is embedded in business training. And it's, I'm so glad to hear that somebody has been living my dream or at least doing (laughs) my dream, right? So um, the the other aspect that I really want to pick up on is this face implementation slash pilot program approach. Mm -hmm. I, you know, again, this is something that I often urge people to do because it's it's sort of a safe way to test something out that you try it with one business unit or one region you learn from whatever mistakes that you might have made and then you try it for two or three more and you can have that those opportunities to learn and perfect your approach until you feel comfortable rolling it out as a standard program. So I just wanted to draw that out for our audience in terms of what I'm taking away from it. The other big takeaway that I'd actually love for you to talk a little bit more about, Kevin, is uh, the the empathy with which you sort of are approaching compliance. We talk here a lot about human-centered compliance, and a big part of that is acknowledging that when we're developing trainings and when we're developing policies and when we're developing programs, that there's someone on the other end who's experiencing it. And you started by talking about your experience as a salesperson who was experiencing compliance before you became part of compliance. And I'd love to hear a little bit more from you about I guess like what you would say to all the compliance officers who are listening, who maybe haven't had the experience of experiencing compliance in the way that you did before you began your compliance journey. It's not just my experience. We've been measuring it ever since. Any important decision we make has to be informed by data. And so you can do 
brand equity audits or there's surveys, there's all kinds of things you can do to understand the experience of the people you're trying to lead or you're trying to influence. So there's lots of ways that you can measure the culture of your organization today in a more systematic manner than an annual HR survey. You've got to do pulse surveys. You've got to do things that really get at it. You know, what is the experience of people with compliance or with culture in general at your company? And, and once you know that and your eyes are wide open to that, you can, you know, I, I love that human-centered compliance. Um, you can approach people in a very, very relevant, meaningful way. You can use words that resonate with them. You can say, hey, look, you know, we did this survey and we found that there's a lack of trust in, in, in compliance. And here's the things we're going to do about that. And so you can, can transparently acknowledge kind of where you, you are in your organization and then intentionally address it. We talk um, within our lab about uh, the power of thinking like a scientist. We've been known to, to quote Adam Grant from time to time. I love Adam Grant. <laughs> of course. So Adam Grant gives us definitions of thinking like a politician, like a preacher, <laughs> like a prosecutor. What does it mean, and this is really relevant to the topic we're talking about today, what does it mean to think like a coach? So when you think like a coach, you're trying to create an environment where people can perform at their absolute best. And there's a scoreboard. So you're keeping score. And, and it's important to know that we're intentional, we're strategic, we have an objective we're trying to reach, but we're trying to create an environment where people are motivated and can perform at their best. But it also has to be flexible to the needs of the, of the person because not everybody learns the same way. Not everybody comes with the same skill sets, the same experience. And so we've got to be flexible. Well, when you're thinking environmentally, you can account for that. You need to think about the environment you're creating. Does it give them opportunities to, to sub out for a few minutes? You know, have you given them space? Have you given them developmental opportunities where they can grow? Are you leveraging their strengths? Like, so, so to me, coaching, you know, transcends like job performance. You're a leader. You're creating an environment where people can be successful. It doesn't matter if you're a leader of compliance or a leader of a business function. You're, you're, you're still creating an environment. And, and if they're not successful, you take accountability for that as the leader. Even if someone else says it's not your fault. And, and that's that's challenging because you do have people sometimes who are not high performers, but you don't have a choice. They're on your team and they can actually be problematic to the others if their performance isn't addressed. And I've always felt that you can also be kind and still drive high accountability because kindness actually makes a huge, huge difference. And so when I experience compliance professionals who try to bully employees or try to have this presence. Well, you're going to do it because I said so, because I'm in compliance. They never say that, but that's the impact they're having on people. We've got to, we've got to help them do their job differently because that's not going to be a, effective over time. I love that. As also someone who draws inspiration from all kinds of yeah. places and enjoys others who do as well. There's something really kind of wonderfully simple, but also rather deep about the point about uh, there's a scoreboard how that then sort of 
translates into what are we doing to measure in the world of compliance? Where's our scoreboard? What are we scoring and how are we going to do it in ways that actually help us figure out whether or not our coaching or our training or the learning experiences that we're offering people are actually helping us achieve those those objectives. I also uh, want to pick up on, on something that the scoreboard idea, mm-hmm. one of the challenges that we experience in compliance is in some ways, it's as if we're trying to create a separate scoreboard. And ultimately, if you're working in a company, the ultimate scoreboard uh, you know, is, is not, not just revenue, but really the long-term interest of the company, right? But if you translate it down to, let's say you're working with salespeople, they have to sell. It would be great if your compliance is wonderful. They're all compliant with whatever you're asking them to do. But if the result of that is that they make zero sales, that scoreboard is a big fat zero. We were talking a little earlier about incorporating compliance training as part of business learning. Really, you're thinking about compliance scoring as part of business scoring. To me, it's two layers of the same concept. Really, everything that compliance in an organization does is not about inhibiting the organization, but it's about the organization's overall success. And I think some of the challenges that compliance functions have is really trying to figure out where what role they play in this. And I think your, your training example on the speaker program was uh, a very good example of one way to start thinking like that. The, the other thing that you had mentioned in our email exchange is you have this mantra that you tell your team that we're company leaders first and functional experts second. Tell us more about what you mean by that and how you help your team embrace that concept. Yeah. I mean, I think it starts with, you know, that, uh, again, eyes wide open to the compliance brand. No matter how good we are, no matter how great our intentions, there's still this experience that people have had with compliance um, that shapes their perception of it. So we're, we're, we're coming at our daily job at a disadvantage, likely through no fault of our own. If I'm starting new at a company, you know, again, I, I don't, I, I can't control the previous experience they've had, but I can control how I show up. And if I say that I want to be, you know, a trusted advisor, one of those fun terms we use, if I want to be relevant, if I want to have the greatest impact I can, again, people need to know that you care. And, and part of caring is understanding what they're trying to accomplish. And I think it starts at the company level. You need to know the strategic imperatives of the business in totality. But then when you meet individuals, you also have to know their objectives. So when I onboard a new compliance professional, I don't let them talk about compliance for a good two to three weeks. I give them a list of one-to-ones that I think they need to have. I want the focus of the discussion to be about the other person and what are their objectives? What are they trying to accomplish from a business standpoint and sincerely care about what they're telling you? And ask questions, understand it. So you start from a position of, I care about your success. And and again, I think that serves you well in interpersonal relationships, but on a macro level, if you have the same attitude towards the company, you're going to come up with better solutions. 
again, picking up a couple of things there, what I really love is the fact that essentially you make sure that when people are joining your team as a compliance professional, that they spend the first chunk of their time, two, three weeks, just mm -hmm. listening, listening to stakeholders in the company. And I, I think a lot of times we do the opposite. When we bring in a new compliance professional, we parade them out, not to listen, but to sort of deliver uh, messages. And so I, I think that's a great approach that I would love to see more of. The one place we tend to do this really well is with our business partnering roles. So over the years, we've added a lot of business partnering roles, put senior level compliance professionals on business unit leadership teams. So those people tend to be really good at it. But what about the operational people? If you have somebody or some bodies who are responsible for monitoring, we should do the same thing from an operational standpoint. So if there's commercial analytics or market research or commercial operations, we should care about them just as much. So again, that's why everyone on your team needs to have this mindset because those other people have pressures, they have objectives, or they have systems they're trying to implement and stuff like that. And if you come to them and not just hear about them, but demonstrate a curiosity, like, oh, tell me more about that. That, that, that sounds like a heavy lift. Is that an SAP system? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you kind of like show them you care too. So I, I do think as, a, as an industry, at least on the, on the pharma side, we're pretty good at the business partnering roles, but we need to have that same tensionality on the operation side too. I think it's interesting. A lot of compliance love to talk about, well, you know, we should make the business, emerging business leaders go through a rotation in compliance <laughs> as part of business leadership training. I like essentially the idea I'm hearing from you, which is for compliance professionals to go through a business rotation so that they can become better compliance leaders. All right, Kevin, you've given us so many better ways from curiosity to empathy to a more integrated approach to compliance, a more integrated approach to compliance training. Um, you've told us about what it means to think like a coach, which will probably be the highlight for me. Now it's time for you to experience the Better Way questionnaire and for everyone to get to know you a little bit better. So as everyone knows, this for me is based on the, uh, the, the questionnaire that James Lipton used to ask on Inside the Actors Studio, Proust, Bernard Pivot, Vanity Fair, lots of folks have done this and now we're doing it. I will ask the first question. This one, you get to choose one of two options. If you can wake up tomorrow having gained any one quality or ability, what would it be? That's option one. Or mm -hmm. is there a quality about yourself you're currently working to improve? If so, what? I'm always trying to be a better listener. Question number two. Again, you have an option. First, who is your favorite mentor? Mm -hmm. Or who do you wish you could be mentored by? I'm going to go with favorite mentor. So her name is Ann Whitaker. She's a pharmaceutical industry veteran, if you will. She started off as a sales rep like me, and she got into organizational development and, and leadership. And then she went to, to run business units at GSK, eventually president of Sanofi and some other companies. But she was the one, and the what I loved about her mentorship is it was all about accountability. I recall having a monitoring finding one day, and she said, Kevin, I know somebody's going to ask me to send an email to tell them to stop doing that, but that's not what we're going to do. And she would start conversations like that, acknowledging what the easy answer would be, and then 
promote the, the more difficult answer. And the other example I'll offer from her is it was her idea to embed compliance within our scoreboards at GSK. And she would never assign ownership to me. She always assigned it to her head of sales, her head of marketing, her head of whomever was most able to impact or you know improve results for the next quarter. So it was her leadership and her you know absolute commitment to accountability and, and driving that within to the business that grew me significantly and, and shaped the way that I see things uh, throughout my career. So just a, a fantastic mentor for me. That's so wonderful. Now, next question is, what is the best job paid or unpaid that you have ever had? I mean, I'm going to leave compliance as great as it's been, and I'm going to go back to coaching. And it wasn't coaching my college or high school teams. I used to do summer camps at different universities around the country. And my favorite thing we would do is team camp, where an entire high school volleyball team would come in for uh, a week and I would get somebody else's team. And I would have the opportunity to not only make them better volleyball players, but make them better teammates. And they would often at the end of the camp, write out cards and stuff to me. And it just made me feel so good. Because it's such a pivotal age for, I have two, two daughters and, and two sons, but I know from my two daughters, like what a pivotal, pivotal age that is, middle school and high school. And to make relationships stronger, to to have them play back to me that I had the impact that I hope to have as human beings, that was probably the best time of my life. Terrific. What is your favorite thing to do? So so I'm a trail runner and I do ultra marathons in the mountains. I don't win anything. Um, it's all about my own personal goals and it's all about completing the race and it's the furthest thing from a keyboard and a desk I could possibly think of. And, and I love it all. I love the suffering. I love the, the people that support you when you're doing a run like that. And I just love being in nature and, and the unpredictability of it. You know, you trip and fall a lot. You may run through a snowstorm. It's just, it's a, it's a great way to, to keep you humble. Um, and so, yeah, that's my favorite thing to do is just be in the mountains, running a, running a trail race. Nice. nice. What is your favorite place? Same answer, the mountains. I love the mountains. Terrific. What makes you proud? My kids, my kids. So uh, I'm a first generation college student. And so for me, education is real important. I have four kids and I think we're, we're approaching the eighth degree. Our youngest is a senior in college and, um, it's just, it makes me so proud that, that my wife and I have instilled the value of education and, and, and that we were privileged enough to, to help them, you know, uh, support them in, in, in getting these degrees. So my kids make me proud on a lot of dimensions, but, you know, their college education has been really important to me. Now we go from the profound to the mundane. What email sign off do you use most frequently? So I use two. So all the best is what is in my kind of signature. So that's my default is all the best. Um, but I find myself like manually crossing it out and doing kind regards a lot. All right. Um, uh, what trend in your field is most overrated? So I could answer this a lot of ways, but I would say listening to the DOJ. And, 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 I, and I, I say that with the utmost respect 
In my experience, so I've walked into three companies under investigation where I've implemented CIAs. I like to think I prevented CIAs. And in my last two companies, neither one of them were given CIAs, corporate integrity agreements for those non-life science folks or those unfamiliar with the DOJ or the OIGs. And, and I think in those experience, I like to teach DOJ attorneys and OIG attorneys why I do what I do and what I've learned and how we implement it. They're attorneys, they're prosecutors, they're not experts in data science, they're not experts in monitoring, they're not experts in training. And I often advise people that, hey, look, if you have a good story to tell, if you have a good explanation for why you do something, those really smart attorneys will absolutely respect it. And I think taking it to the next level, if you teach them something they didn't know and you help them understand what informed your, your thinking and inform the story, even better. And I think we're way too quick to you know, adopt things they say like tone at the top, culture of compliance. And to me, it's commitment at the top. It's a culture of accountability. We need to use words that resonate with business leaders. And so again, they have a lot of valuable insights based on the work that they do. And we should absolutely listen and learn from them, but they should also listen and learn from us as professionals in our field with a vast amount of experience and, and hopefully an experience of being effective. So true. I I have often said that trying to get guidance from DOJ about how to improve or ensure your organizational integrity is like looking for guidance from your local juvenile delinquent officers <laughs> on how to raise your children um, because they have a job that is to go after companies and organizations that have engaged in wrongdoing. And that's a particular view that they would form based on those experiences. And it's not really where you should start if your goal is never to meet them. If you do mm -hmm. your job well, your path shall never cross that of the DOJs. So last question, what word would you use to describe your day so far? Excited. I'm I'm excited. It, it it makes me feel good. I mean, again, I'm still learning, so I don't have all the answers. But I feel like you're a, a kindred spirit, and and I'd add Zach to that as well. That we're all trying to do good, and we're all trying to do better, and and that makes me excited about my day and about you know what what I'm trying to do in my professional and I'd say personal life as well. Well, thanks, Kevin, so much for joining the podcast and for giving us the chance to get to know you a little bit better and for sharing all of your better ways. And thank you all for tuning in to the Better Way podcast and exploring all of these better ways with us. For more information about this or anything else that's happening with RNG Insights Lab, please visit our website at www.ropesgray.com slash RG Insights Lab. You can also subscribe to this series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. And if you have thoughts about what we talked about today, the work the lab does, or just have ideas for better ways we should explore, please don't hesitate to reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening.